Hello and welcome to the e-commerce playbook podcast, another episode and maybe, 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 maybe our most important episode we have ever done. Uh, that's not just marketer speak to try to get you to listen to it. We have huge news this week in the Forever 100 journey. Uh, something I've been sitting on for a little while now, which is that we have sold our first brand. Uh, we've sold FC Goods. It is a big and momentous moment. So momentous, in fact, that not only do I have Taylor Holiday on the podcast this week, but I even have a special guest host to lead the conversation. That's Aaron Orndorff. Aaron, say hi to the people. Hello, people. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. First time ever on the podcast. That was a great intro. Um, and uh, Aaron, we'll introduce you a little bit more here in a second when we jump in, but let's just get right to it. We're going to talk about everything about this sale. I'm going to tell you not only like how much revenue FC Goods was doing and the pathway, I'm going to tell you exactly how much money we sold FC Goods for. So uh, we're we're getting into it. We're going to tell you all the details here. Um, and then and then after this episode, in a couple of days, we're going to have a follow-up interview with the buyer of FC Goods, who's going to give us their side of the story and tell us all the stuff we were doing wrong. So a couple of huge episodes here. Hang in there. Let's jump in. All right, Aaron, you are the host. So take over. Everybody is, I mean, they're really here for you at this point, I think. Taylor, you don't need to say hi. Everybody knows who you are. So whatever. You're, you just waved on an audio mechanism. So there you go. We're going to uh, edit this, right? We're going to edit this. We're going <laughs> to chop it up a little bit. I don't know. That'll, that'll happen. We better snip this front part. This is, this is, yeah. <laughs> don't, mind, right. don't mind Aaron. He comes from that highbrow, big marketing agency with all the budget and time and editors. So it doesn't other side of the fence now, Andrew. My name is yeah. Aaron Orndorf. I'm the vice president of marketing at Common Thread Collective, where we help profitably to scale D to C e-coms brands right around 2 million, 30 million, plus a few larger organizations in the mix. And I am getting to play host today to put Taylor and Andrew in the hot seat because of how momentous this episode is. Pop the champagne and drop the beat. We just sold a brand. So what, what you guys don't know, by the way, is that Aaron is is the um, actual like brains behind the whole podcast. So like it was just like as soon as we were gonna have this momentous podcast, it was like it was like okay, I'm gonna come host. So so like that's why he's doing this. Really, I'm here to keep it in order and keep it on on track. Tight chronology. What are the takeaways? And we've already gone off the rails completely. Yeah, completely. So I, what I want you to do, gentlemen, is take me back oh so many years to early 2018. And if we need to go back a little bit earlier than that, I wanna understand, I really wanna understand, Andrew, how you went from a paid media buyer to uh, eventually the president of 4x400. I wanna understand that just a little bit and then get into the brands that you acquired and how FC Goods got into that mix. Well, I mean, yeah, the beginning of the story is that I, like 4400 barely existed uh, and I was at CTC. So I, I was, I went, I mean, I started as a paid media buyer at Kalo, which I've, I think I've told people on this podcast before, um, working, learning everything from uh, the beginnings of everything from Taylor, uh, who was the head of all marketing at Kalo. And um, and then from there, as CTC started kind of going and becoming more of its own thing and Taylor's breaking off from just most, Kalo taking up most of his time, I came pretty soon after that happened over to be a strategist at CTC and then eventually the head of strategy at CTC. And somewhere in the midst of that journey, uh, 
Taylor and Josh, one of our other partners and Ian, seemed to get this idea for why don't we build our own brands? And then there was Slick and there was opening day. And somewhere in the midst of that, the FC Goods conversation started. But I actually should probably defer to Taylor because I don't remember or, like that part oh, of it. So- and did I cover everything, Aaron? Well, did, did you want so, to know yeah, more? that's a good that's a good tee up to Taylor because uh, I mean I love the fact that as the VP of marketing at this organization I get to say things like we practice what we preach we've got skin in the game. Uh, where did that come from besides just teeing up Aaron Orndorff a couple of years later? Yeah, so I mean we we came from the brand side. We always wanted to get back to the brand side, right? Like that was that was the that we started CTC so that we could arbitrage talent development and information to learn more about growing their own business. Like it was always about getting back to the brand side for us. Like, um, so that was, that was always the vision. And then FC goods is like this crazy overlap of network because it actually goes back to my 30th birthday party. Okay. So my, I turned 30. It was the same year we started CTC. Okay. So this was six years ago. It was my 30th birthday party. I had just had twins. My boys were four months old and my wife threw a, Wiffle ball themed birthday party. It's like, I remember it was like one of the first times we came out of my house because we had just had twins. We were completely overwhelmed. We were like, we got to do something. So we had a bunch of friends over and we went to play wiffle ball. And one of those friends was Brian Garofalo. So Brian, for those of you that don't know, is the CMO of Igloo now. And he and I have been friends for a long time. And he brought me a gift for my 30th birthday wiffle ball themed baseball party. And it was an FC Goods wallet. Um, and that was how I first ever encountered the product. He knew I was a huge baseball fan, obviously. And he knew John Brong. And he knew John, who at the time, who Andrew will explain who that is in a second. But um, he, John was making wallets. And he thought, this is a rat. And BG's just one of those guys that's always into the cool things. He knows where to find cool stuff. And it was just the raddest gift I had ever gotten. It was like someone had gotten me this perfect wallet that like just met me exactly where I was at. And that's how I first encountered the brand six years ago when we were, we were just getting started. And did you already, were you on the lookout at that point? Because you said it's part of the the dream, the vision was to always get back to brand. Were you hunting at that point? Oh, no. no. This At this point, when I say like CDT is starting, I mean, it was like me, Jordan, and Corey in a tiny little room doing like bread loaf sampling at local parks on the weekends. Like we were so rootsy, like early stage agency trying to just make money. Kayla was just starting. This was like very like beginning stages where 4 by 400 was like, a bullet point on a dream whiteboard down the road somewhere, but was definitely not close to fruition at that point. Back when, back when as an agency, you would take money to do anything anybody would give you money for. That's right. That's right. You want to start a movie for a Kickstarter campaign? We're in. You want to, uh, you know, sell bread in the shape of sports balls? We're in. Whatever. We're, we got. It. So we fast forward four years. Young Andrew Ferris has honed his teeth in the paid media world, and. FC Goods comes back on your radar? Yeah, so so it had always sort of stayed on my radar because I would like, I like to gift it. And then jo- what John would do is John, the kid, so John Brong, basically what he would do is he was like, he was a maker, right? He would buy baseball gloves off of eBay and in his spare time, he would cut them up and get them manufactured into wallets and he would release them like 20 at a time. And like however many he could make in his spare time, I mean, really, so I sort of followed along as he did it. I followed him on Instagram. He built a little cool following. It was just a cool product. And then BG came back to me and was like, hey, I think there's a, I think there's a thing here um, that you guys could actually like build this into a brand. And John, you know, doesn't, he thinks he's going to shut it down. Um, what do you think about talking to him about it? And this was before Father's Day in June of 2018. And so it was like, well, what if we ran a test? What if we like tried to see like how much demand is this? I think it's cool, but... 
but is there actually demand? And so that was um, what we did first. We ran a follow, we created a video. There's a cool voiceover by, we should show note, link that, that first video, Andrew, that has um, Evan DeWalt, who was um, a friend and he designed the CTC brand. We did the voiceover for this, uh, this Father's Day. It's really cool. Um, and we ran a funnel to see if we could sell the wallets for Father's Day. And that was like our proof of concept to see if we were interested in buying it. So before, or, or had you already started digging into some of the numbers behind FC goods during your evaluation process, your due diligence? Like the, or, the numbers were just like inconsequential because he would sell 20 wallets every four months and then he would just shut the brand down. And it would just be sold out like until he made more. So it, like evaluating it on the basis of any of the revenue would have been like, it just wasn't the business we were trying to think about building. It was just like, a hobbyist, it might have might as well have been, been an Etsy store, right? Like that he was just sort of doing on his own. And and so he made a bunch of wallets for this Father's Day. And I think we spent, Andrew, it looks like you wrote down about 8,000 on a launch at a two to one rocks. And there was enough margin that we were like, oh yeah, there's something here. And that was like one ad that we hacked together, built a little funnel, ran to a website that was meh at the time. And and that was sort of it. So that was, we didn't evaluate the business like we would now looking at a P&L and assessing all that. We just used this funnel as proof of demand and then thinking we could build the supply chain. And that, just, that sort of reflects our naivete too, a little bit about the early days of 4x400, which was like, oh, supply chain, we'll figure that thing out. Finding old baseball gloves to turn into like the whole thing that becomes the core problem to solve, we just neglected our thinking altogether. So did you run that on spec? Was it a experiment you co-created with Andrew and the owner? Yeah, we basically, we basically said, we're going to do this. We'll pay for the ads, but we get our money back out of it. So like we'll take our $8,000 back and then I think we had some rev split on the on the product or whatever. But for John, it was like, well, if these guys are going to buy this, then go ahead. <laughs> like again, it was so hobbyist. Again, it was just like a fun side project that he was doing. He didn't really care. Um, well, that was an opportunity. And my understanding is that it actually was sort of becoming a little bit burdensome to him. Like it was like kind of annoying because people would want them to gift, like you're talking about, and it's like enough demand there to be like a pain to create 20 of these wallets by hand at a time. Um, and it wasn't probably as fun anymore as when you first did the first few of them. And now it's like, Oh my gosh, I have to cut up another baseball glove. And then, and then at the same time, not even close to like a real business, you know? So like, it was just like a fun little sub community. And it, it's even still, like I've talked to people, we had a call like a couple months ago and we did the series for the, um, 100 year anniversary of the Negro leagues. Um, and that was a really cool thing where there was connection for all of these different, like small baseball brands, all connected to the Negro league, um, hall of fame, uh, or the Negro league museum in, um, in Kansas city. And, uh, and so all of these small, like makery artist kind of little baseball brands, niche brands, we're all talking and doing like little giveaways and give backs and like, Hey, you do a thing for this. You do a thing for this. Everybody will give a give back. Well, people still like, um, where when when we got involved people were still like oh where's john like like it was like a little group of fun friendly brands together that was like all small little side projects making fun baseball stuff you know that was very much the vibe and it and even in that community it still is to some degree now i'm sure there's lessons in here takeaways inside the idea whether it's somebody who's launching a product uh, this sort of test case or how you would then now differentiate and actually run the evaluation process later on. But that's Father's Day 2018. You have a successful one-off campaign, 8K, two ROAS, and then you start evaluating. Walk me through then the, the deal process for that initial acquisition uh, and then on into 2018 and how that performed. Yeah. And 
this reflects like, again, this is sort of an odd case. It's so different now at our level of maturity now, but like the deal literally was like, and because it was one person, no debt on the business. Again, this is like the simplest form of transaction was basically like, um, John, we think we could make this better with us. Uh, so basically we think whatever equity we offer will be more valuable to you with us than you shutting the business down. So we'll give you five grand now cash uh, for 80% of the business and we'll commit to investing in it. Um, and our sort of proposition is that it'll be worth more to you at the end of this with that 20% than it will be for you shutting it down. So do you want to do it? And he was like, yeah. And that was the extent of it. it. Like, it was a very simple conversation between somebody who was really, again, just doing something on the side and saw us as a way to amplify the work that he, he had been getting in. So that was the deal. $5,000 for 80% of the business. And that will invest what you're pitching him on. What did that look like, Andrew? Well, so it's funny. Cause like I was barely on the, um, on the 4400 side still like I, you know, Taylor really was architecting all of this. And I think it speaks a little bit to the, to the, uh, uh, birth narrative of, uh, of 4400 and CTC, because at that point, what you've got is opening day, right. Still existed in that point. Right. So that was the brand that we started, um, slick we owned and we're playing with some, um, but it was still very small. And then FC goods was the third brand in the mix. And it was also still very small. And four by 400 was, Brian, Rob, and Josh, you know, which was like essentially the founder of slick doing some build, uh, Robbie might've gone over pretty soon in there too, but he was doing some work for it. And then some CTC help basically. So it's essentially like an intern and then like a couple guys. And it was like a few very small brands, very like early stage. And so I would remember like in our old office, Taylor, where you'd call me over to your office and we'd like look together at the opening day account or the FC goods account. We go like, Hey, what do you think? Do we have something here? Do we not? And like, it was very touch and go, you know, it would be, you know, and it wasn't to the point yet where like things were really, really built out and dis and structured and with vision and mission and clear ways and all that kind of stuff. It was just trying to see if it could work. So, so early in that process for FC, I was in the mix on that for sure. Um, and helping to run that. And, uh, and actually part of the way I ended up moving over for a hundred full times. I remember I said to you, Taylor, like, man, when I'm laying in bed at night and I'm like, and work is keeping me up, um, it's, it's the like one day a week I'm dedicating to four by 400, not the four days a week I'm dedicating to CTC. That's the thing that I'm most interested in. And you're like, great. That's, that means it's time go. So yeah. that, that was actually the thing as we started doing that work together, that was actually the thing that triggered for me. Like, this is what I want to go do. I want to go like try and build it myself. And, and this is, this is important. And I don't know how much Andrew, I think you've shared the Genesis story, but this was back when four by 400 was a entity inside of common thread collective. Like, so what Andrew's describing is there was a moment when he was the head of strategy where the little agreement that we had of his employment contract was he would spend four days a week working on CTC and one day a work working on four, one day a week working on four by 400 brands. So that's what he's describing. And this was all part of, it's funny. I just did a, a an interview for a magazine the other day, because apparently all these agencies are starting brands now. And I was just like, yeah, I think it's a horrible idea. <laughs> that was basically like my synopsis. I think she called me thinking we're like the poster child for doing this. And I was like, no, 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 it's a horrible idea. And that was in the midst of us learning. And I think what Andrew's describing is the exact tension that begins to exist is that his job was four days a week in the agency, but his brain was already on this. And, and we knew that. And so it was time for him to go and do that. And we had made this investment. And that's when we really began to have the conversation about raising money and spinning four by 400 out. 
Hmm, so there's this dual trajectory going on then all through 2018, if I'm understanding correctly. And FC Goods is playing a role in that. Andrew, what are the numbers, uh, like looking out into 2018, what were the success metrics you were aiming for to continue that proof of concept uh, on the FC Goods side? But then also what needed to happen to essentially go from a side hustle one day a week? I like that. That's a good, I think a lot of people can identify with that to go from that side hustle one day a week into uh, something fuller. Um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, it's a little different for us because it came with the backing of CTC in a certain way. And so like the payroll was a little bit different and there had been a little bit of money raised and, and some of those things. But I think that, it, that you know, for us, the tr- the thing that we didn't know at the time was just how crazy seasonal FCG was too. So when I was actually just looking back at that like early months and and realizing like, oh my gosh, like we did like, you know, 30 grand or like, I think, I think after June, for Father's Day, which included like a special limited edition series. And we, I think like the, the, the idea of the classics flagship series was like a, do you think that'll work? Like only doing part of the glove from glove leather. That was a whole different concept than we had ever done before. Um, it was all glove leather on every wallet before. And then the classics, which is what we ended up selling a lot of was like just pieces of the, of the wallet were made out of glove leather. So we had to kind of make that happen. And, and so in those early days, like in August, I think it was like 12 grand or July, it was like 12 grand in revenue. And then it was like 20 grand and then it was like 25 and all of these, because there was essentially, you know, no other marketing mix going on here. Like it was those numbers, but it was those numbers at like two to one MER where the MER was the exact same as the ROAS, like, because that was the only way we were really driving interest in the brand in the early stages. So so all that to say, what we could see was that we had ads that generated one and a half to two in ROAS. And that wasn't an amazing number, but it was enough to say, you know, we've barely worked on this yet. Probably if we put a bunch of time into solving a bunch of problems, product-wise, website-wise, ad-wise, and you kind of go through the iterative process that is always part of this, um, then you can really get somewhere. And again, what we didn't know at the time was that part of the thing that we were struggling with in those early days was actually that it's just so highly seasonal that once we finally got to holiday, I remember we sold out of everything we had right away that first year. We just had no idea how much demand we would get because of how much gift purchasing was going on and, and all that kind of stuff. So by the end of that year, it was like, oh, this business is like really a lot bigger and um, yeah, and, and can really get somewhere. So, so yeah. What did that, give me, give me the numbers. You know, I like the numbers. Give me the yeah. numbers that ending year 2018, what did that look yeah, like? Yeah, so, so with about a half a year, um, of total investment and really in some ways is even less than that. What we ended up with was just under 500 K in revenue, 494 is the number I've written down, uh, and about 180 K in ad spend. So, uh, out of two row ass all in, um, tiny little bit of Google on top of that. So, uh, two row ass 2.7 MER. So actually one of the things that was interesting to me when I was going back over the whole journey here was that pretty much right away, there was a, even though Facebook was really overwhelmingly our top of the funnel driver of value of like, new customers to the brand. Um, there is some revenue that was coming in from the early stages that is not attributed to Facebook, but that was coming from somewhere because again, like John had shut the brand down basically. So, um, whether I don't, I don't know, there's probably a little bit of repeat customer in there, but I don't, I mean, I haven't gone and looked, but knowing the history of FC as I do, I'm sure it was very small. What I'm assuming was happening is there was, there was decent word of mouth happening kind of right away. Um, either that or just some unattributed, 
revenue falling through the cracks of the data somewhere, one of the two. Um, so we sat at a 2.7 MER on 500 grand revenue. And at that time, and where the 400 story was like, that was like, holy cow, we're doing a couple hundred grand a month for this brand new brand. And, and that was where we were at at holiday was, was sitting at those numbers while stocking out and sitting at above our ROAS target and going, oh man, if we had more, if we had more product here, we absolutely um, could have gotten somewhere. Good position to be in. You used a couple of acronyms there, MER. And then another one you really like to use is RPC. What are those two terms? Yeah. Um, so MER, um, <laughs> uh, marketing efficiency uh, rating. Yeah. yeah. Marketing efficiency ratio. I, or rating. Yeah. It's funny. It's so funny that I forgot it because I've used the acronym for so long, but I think probably a lot of listeners here know that, uh, at this point, um, but uh, it's, to- it's just revenue over total ad spend. So it's just this, it's sort of, some people say blended ROAS. So it's just total revenue over total ad spend. Basically, um, a way, another way of saying a 2.5 MER would be a 40% ad spend, right? So it's just saying uh, that basic metric. So, um, so that was the MER. And then um, RPC um, is a metric I do like quite a bit, um, which is revenue per click. And that's... Um, you know, the obvious way to do that is, is revenue divided by clicks, uh, revenue divided by sessions. But, uh, the other way to do that is just conversion rate times AOV will get you there as well. So the point of RPC for me is that it just validates the value of a click. It just says like, when you get somebody to their website, are, is the relationship between your AOV and your CVR healthy? Um, and, um, I mean, every time I start talking about the value of a click, it makes me want to go down 14 rabbit holes about the importance of context on a metric like that. Uh, I'm going to, not do that right now because it's not the point of this. But um, but 2018 right away, a click was worth two dollars and sixty four cents to us. And I'll just tell you, like that is like twice as much as the brands that we recently acquired. Like it's like that met that ended up being a very very strong metric. Um, I think validating basically that people like the product. Yeah. And before you go to 2019, I want to add one thing about what happens at the end of this year. Okay. So the first year we own the brand for about five months. We do about five hundred thousand in revenue. We're feeling awesome. We sell out at holiday. But we begin the inklings of what we discover is like one of the core challenges, right? Is that we basically have to source tons of old baseball gloves, right? Uh, and there's a photo that I'm going to share whenever I get to, uh, to to posting this on Twitter. That's me laying on a pile of them because the we just had to start finding gloves everywhere. And so relationships with played against sports and old churches that had these like boxes in the back and like just anything that you can imagine, it becomes, it starts to begin to be like, oh, this is, this is a big, big problem. We got to find these things everywhere. Um, and how are we going to do that becomes one of the primary questions as we head out and we look into the next year and go, how big can this be? So that's something we begin to evaluate. And literally there was gloves all over our office, just literally everywhere. We would take them from anybody, anywhere. We would have interns literally spending all day looking for baseball gloves. And let's fast track. So we end 2018, half a million in revenue, uh, just under a bit under 200K in Facebook spend at a two. And then hit me, because this is such a good moment of what feels like the, the, the big number movement kind of stuff. Uh, hit me with those 2019 totals and then walk me back through how you do something like that. Yeah. So 2019, what I would, would was the sort of year of growth and like real validation. This is like a real business. I mean, we've gotten a couple hundred thousand, like I said, at the end of 2018. So I think we knew we had something there in a way that, again, if you just kind of hear me play that back, right. 
July, August, September, you're sitting there at 20 to 40 grand or whatever going like, is this a thing or not? It's actually in October of 2018 that there started to be some click. And I think we got to like 50 grand in revenue there at like doubling our ad spend, basically at the same efficiency. And that was basically a classic matter of like a couple website tweaks and, a, and some new ads that like worked and that worked and made all of our traffic more valuable and made us be able to drive a lot more traffic and all those kinds of things. So, but even still there was like this big question, well, come 2019. And that was basically what happened in 2018, but rinse and repeat. So um, January is the worst time of year for uh, FC goods uh, every year. Just the seasonality is terrible for it for a number of reasons. And so it was that same kind of question. I, I distinctly remember this actually going like, oh my gosh, I can't believe how little money we're doing right now and how bad our ROAS is and how all that kind of stuff after, even after we'd restocked product. But what we then found is that we kind of rolled back into Father's Day. And again, we had not actually experienced, like we had done a little test run at Father's Day in 2018, but we didn't really know how big that moment was going to be. And the same thing happened. It went nuts and we sold out of like tons and tons of product and had to shut off our ad spend with like 10 days before Father's Day or whatever, because when we normally would have been selling tons more stuff because we just didn't really know how much we needed to stock. Um, so, uh, so then that happened again that year, right? We went through those same cycles and we learned this pattern of like, okay, big father's day, big, big holiday, um, roll it all up together. And what you end up with is in 2019, we did 2.2 million in revenue against 820 grand in ad spend, um, total. Um, so what's interesting is 2.7 MER in that first year, uh, 2019, 2.68, uh, almost the exact same MER. I mean, like right on the nose there, um, and, uh, and that's sort of a fascinating thing to me that that happened the way it did. Uh, uh, and then um, that was about 680 grand in Facebook spend at a little bit over a two in ROAS. Um, and, uh, and yeah, so, so basically you put that all together and now you're getting to this point of like solidly spending, you know, averaged out about 50 grand a month on Facebook ads, except, or a little more than that. But, uh, but really that was really heavily weighted towards Father's Day and holiday. Um, so 2.2 million in, the, in 2019, um, you know, not like mind blowing numbers or anything for it, but for us, like even at that MER with the margin that we had and the product and it's relatively cheap to ship and all those things, we are solidly profitable. I'm glad you said that was fascinating to you because it's fascinating to me to essentially increase spend 287% and actually improve efficiency, improve the ROAS. Uh, I'm glad you said fascinating because I think it's fascinating. Is it a matter of scale and, and size that I'm just not enough accustomed to, to realize, nah, you can do that. You can increase that much as long as you're still sub 1 million. And as long as you're playing the game, right. Uh, and the creatives on point and you're staying on top of the landers and things like that. Uh, or, or is it as surprising as I would think? Uh, I, here's what I really think about this. I have a friend who started a business um, fairly recently and who was asking me to look at an econ business. And I was like, sure, you know, and from talking to him so far about this, I'm just not sure that he is obsessive enough about the problems in the way of converting more traffic. Um, and by that, I mean both on the ad side, which is uh, essentially like um, really making sure that he's obsessive about like finding ads that work and that drive high quality traffic at a price that you can afford basically. Um, and then on the website, really obsessing about like, why is somebody not buying this thing? And because like what, what I think is that in the, especially in the early stage of a business like this, like 
so if, if, if your lever for customer acquisition is Facebook ads, like you better freak out about whether or not that like works. And if it's not getting you to the metrics that you want, um, then to dig in over and over and over and over and over and solve the problem, throw a new creative at it, get creative about very different creative about it. I mean, you're using still images, get some video, go use some UGC, like, like pull from every possible thing you can do. Maybe you need this, maybe you need better validation. Maybe you need more reviews. Maybe you need to show the product better. And, and we learned a lot of things along the way about FC goods in particular, but what I would say that that really represents was, um, you know, there was again, some seasonality to it and we learned those things, but what it really represents, I think a lot was this, the continuing iterative process of just doing everything. We got adjusting price, um, uh, tweaking the product like line, not, not whole, not totally overdoing it, but tweaking, like get rid of this one and add this one instead and listen to your customers. And it's like all of these little obsessive things about how do I make sure to make something that people want and then put it in front of them in a way that it's going to show them that they want it. So, um, yeah, so I, I just remember, I mean, that's so much of what the early stage of any four or 500 brand is. And I think actually some of the energy that we bring to founders, one of the things that we offer is like, you're going to bring us your brand. And then we are going to, we are going to obsess about like, why is why are the metrics not where we want them to be until we solve it and get them to where we want them to be? And that's basically what it was. So that's that's how you end up increasing your spend. And, and that's how you end up um, getting to where you want to be uh, in the long run is that you just keep freaking out about that. There's a uniqueness and a devotion to that problem solving that is incredibly attractive to me, uh, just uh, for you two as humans. Your process in this Taylor, as things begin to click, I mean that's a that's a more than three hundred percent revenue increase that appears to be on the back of really good spend. How are you navigating that in the interim? And at what point was it from the beginning? Was it as certain certain struggles came into view? Did the two of you begin thinking about what do we do with this next? Yeah, so there's this thing happening in the middle of all of this, right? Because Andrew, what what was the date that you actually became the CEO of Four by Four Hundred? It was at our Christmas party in, in 2019, right? Yeah, or, the end of the year. Yeah. yeah. So, so that year, 2019, one of the things that's happening in the middle of all of this is Josh, who was the CEO of Four by Four Hundred, is stuck outside the world. And that's for another podcast for another time. But in the process of an adoption, he gets stuck outside of the country. And so we are going through like this real tumultuous, like internal situation. It's like a devastating personal situation that he had to sort out while figuring out who was going to run the company. And like I was in both places in some capacity. Ian was trying to do it. There was a lot more enmeshment between the two. It was a hard time. So that's one of the things that's like in the pot here, I think, as, as this goes, that um, we really begin to platform Andrew. But the thing about the, the 4x400 or the, the FC Goods thing is that it was it, it is not a simple business to run. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is the method was we were doing these like drops of limited edition product once a quarter or so. And that was like a big part of the marketing promotion. These were really expensive high-end wallets that were 100% handmade because one of the business, the changes that we made to the business early on was we went from 100% handmade to partially handmade and partially synthetic so that we are uh, partially US grain steer hide so that we could produce more of them. So we could get more out of the baseball gloves. So we had this really hard cycle of product production. We had this really hard supply chain combined with this really difficult sort of internal management stuff that was just making it taxing. Um, 
And so it's important context because I think that frames up how we begin to think about this question of do we sell it and what do we do with this business? So we, we have this growth thing that's happening that's really amazing, but we also begin to see sort of the ceiling on it, right? Like where we're like, well, just this product just this supply chain, how much further can we push it? And I think towards the end of the year, we begin to feel all of that begin to press on us a little bit. Was it then a, the idea of let's acquire, operate and grow uh, that Andrew always drops at the top of these acquire, operate, grow and eventually sell. Is that, is that part and parcel of what's going on here or use, or am I giving you too much credit for a master plan? No, I, I, so, so it definitely is. Now there, there's this debate that still exists inside of four by 400 about what is the sale sales point? What's the strike point, right? Like, and one of the things that we're trying to do is we're trying to acknowledge that it's not the same for every brand, right? Um, that some systems of production and ease of marketing and these things lend us for the internal CT four by 400 resources to be able to scale further than others, right? And there's always this tension between how much resource one of the brands sucks out of the system that has to be managed relative to its upside, right? So these are all things that are in the pot. So we know we want to grow and sell. The question of when we sell is always relative. Now, I have opinions about that, like sort of on the lower side, probably than some of the other people. Uh, so we're all over the place. We don't have a, it's not like one to 3 million, we sell everything at 3 million. That's not the plan, right? It has to, it's more nuanced than that. And I think 4x4 four four, or FC Goods is a really good example of that. There's a lot of nuance to what went into the decision um, of deciding it was time for 4x400 four to sell this business because we had done what we could do well. And what it needed now was things that we were no longer great at. Um, and I think that's what we're going to get into now talking a little bit about uh, like product development and supply chain stuff. Yeah, because I almost get the feeling that you've hinted at these things. You just hit them right there. Uh, you said them out loud. Back over to Andrew then. the I don't know if, because uh, I want to drop those 2020 numbers in, in just a little bit, but before we share that 2020 big picture that then led into why we're all gathered here together today, were there any particular questions that were haunting you in 2020 and thinking through that breakpoint that Taylor was just discussing. Yeah, so I actually really distinctly remember this because there was a partner meeting at the end of the year um, when you could meet together uh, as uh, in 2019 as um, as humans in a very small room, actually. A bunch of us crowded into a, um, a little room in, in Orange County. And we, um, this was one of the big questions as we were evaluating different elements of the entire sort of CTC 4400, you know, ecosystem that we exist in and, and our other companies as well. Like this, one of the big questions for 400 was, should we sell FC goods? That was like one of the agenda items. Um, and um, I remember it distinctly because I remember being absurdly tired because I had a like uh, one month old son and, uh, and I was mostly on paternity leave, but it was like one of the things I stepped away from. Uh, I was like at the end of the year, kind of going like, okay, I'll go do these meetings. I was just like zonked during that, you know, long semi-intense, you know, all these conversations were locked in and really trying to get a lot done. So, uh, so when it came to that, I remember that very well. And, and uh, we were kicking it around. And I, I, my first reaction was like, don't sell it like this. These holiday moments are really big. There's um, and, and the thing is we had stocked out again at the end of 2019. So we really didn't know how big we could make, like we could really make Christmas season B. Um, and we had stocked out of Father's Day. So I was like, 
maybe like maybe we're sitting on something that could get a lot bigger. Um, and there's like cash flow in it, and there's profit in it in this way that's really crazy. But as we talked, um, a couple things like were crucial. One of them is we had not been able to develop product at this point in the brand story. We had tried. We had introduced belts and toiletry bags and some of these things, and none of them had really clicked, which meant that um, we really were dependent entirely on acquiring new customers to sell wallets. We had no LTV in the brand because once you have one wallet, you don't need another one. Um, and you know, I've talked about this plenty of times in the podcast, but uh, that was a real a, a real problem. We also didn't really have any expansion of sales channels. Like we have no ability to wholesale to be, wholesale anything to anybody. We just didn't have any infrastructure to do that. No sales team or anything. We weren't on Amazon uh, really. Like we had kind of toyed around with it at one point, but uh, it just doesn't didn't seem to us to be a great Amazon product and, and we didn't want to devalue the brand anyways and just kind of cannibalize our own sales, et cetera. So then you start to look and go, okay, we don't have great distribution of sales channels. We don't have any LTV. Um, the supply chain with our very small team is a huge pain. So we don't want to do that. Um, and lastly, I was on uh, getting geared up here to run. Uh, I was supposed to run growth across our company. Um, at the time I was the head of growth at 40400. And then I was about to become the CEO. And I was also the functioning brand general manager of FC Good. So it was like taking eating up way too much of my time uh, relative to other opportunities within there. Um, but actually what I still remember was the a great question was asked at that meeting that really helped me um, actually flip my position on this, which was, I think it was Grant Zanini. Um, Grant said, um, do you think you can double it again in the next year? do you think you could double the business again? And my answer was, uh, it's not that I don't think we could, but I wouldn't bet on it. Like, no. And he is like, okay, then sell it. Like, and he was on the fence. He was trying to sort out his, his position on the whole thing too. In that meeting, it was such a simple clarifying question. And it was like, oh yeah, you're right. Even if this is a pretty decent business, like the actual long-term for our team, for what we are good at, not for somebody else's team. I think for somebody else's team, it can, it's, and I think the buyer made a great decision. I really do. And I'm, I'm going to, yeah. But I think that for our team, it was not a good idea for us to keep doing it because we were not the right people to get it to the next stage. And then it was like, okay, let's go, let's sell it. Well, and the key word in that, that question is, could you, could we, which is what you just reflected in that, because there's such a temptation, uh, one mixed up with pride to this idea of past performance, present performance, future success. Absolutely. The objectivity in that moment, where does that come from and how, how can you hone it? Boy, I don't know. I mean, yeah, I think I was probably tired enough, not just from the baby, but uh, just like, just like Taylor said, it'd been a hard year to know that like, I'm there. I actually, I can't give a ton more to this. And I also knew that like the rest where the rest of our team was. Um, and I think it was just really clear to me that the LTV wasn't going to be there in a way that like created re repeat revenue from customers we acquired. And this was looking at kind of like where we had gotten to and what ROAS we were sitting at for the year and some of that and going like, okay, yeah, we had improved our uh, some, but it's not like we were sitting at a three for the year and going like, oh, there's tons of scale that we left on the table. Um, and said it was just like, I just don't know how much more there is there. We've, we've, we gave it a shot to develop products. We really did. Um, and we're just not the right people. And because the, a few enough things had gone not great, um, even though a lot of things had gone very well, but enough of our like, next step things had gone, not gr had gone not great for me to be able to go, you know, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily see it. So this is a good, on the front end, that test cases for when to pull the trigger to buy. And now we're on that back end of you coming to grips, coming to grips with that. Let's, 
with that, okay, this is uh, this is something that's beyond us and our team, but there is value that's still being generated by this. And you begin then to go out, I imagine, to say, okay, how, where, what are the next steps that we take? Yeah, well, so one other thing I was gonna say about that is that I just, I thought of something else, which is, this is where 4400 has this distinct advantage of the fact that I came from the CTC side and worked on a lot of other accounts. So like, I've just seen enough accounts at the size that we had wanted to go to, to go like, I don't know if we can get to that stage, you know? So that I think that is a real advantage for like what our team can do and provide for, even for the entrepreneurs that we bring in and, and work with is like, we've seen a lot now at this point and, and, and have a pretty good feel for kind of where brands are going and what it needs to get to the next stage, I think. Um, but yeah, so from there, after that, it became this question of <clears throat> what we actually did was like, we we're kind of deciding sell it or not. And we were most of the way there. And then it was like, okay, let's just kind of keep evaluating this a little bit. I, I probably sounded a little more sure at that moment than, than I was, but with the one other thing we held against that was, okay, if we, in, instead of selling it, here's the one other option we could explore, which was, what if we brought in a separate brand GM um, and have somebody else run it who's really talented? Could they take it to five million or whatever that I that Andrew can't? Um, so that's actually what we did. We we explored two things at the same time. One of them was should we start uh, bring as I interviewed a couple of people to um, to maybe be the brand GM, and at the same time we started kind of feeling out the market and talking to brokers about like do we want to. Um, try to sell this and what do we think we could get from it and what's this market going to look like? And that was basically the first half of 2020 is we, we kind of explored both of those options um, and and it looked good with brokers. It looked good with brokers. Yeah, so the, uh, this is important, I think, because one of the things I want to do with this, this episode is selling an e-commerce business and everything that that entails and all the little things about it, like what is a broker, who are they, how do they work, where do we meet them? Like, so we worked with um, a group called FE International um, and Josh, who handles our transactions. Um, we were in New York City, actually, he and I, and we went and had some meetings with a few different people. We went and met with them, uh, presented the business, outlined what we have, heard about their reputation for making transactions. Um, we were evaluating them and a few others, you know, Quiet Lights, another big brokerage in our space that does a lot of deals. Um, and eventually the beautiful thing about some of these brokerages is the premise is sort of, you don't pay them. You get into a relationship where if they sell the business, um, they get paid. Right. And so for us, part of the thing that Andrew was describing was this like two tiered evaluation. And so with the brokers, what we had is an opportunity to say, well, let's see what happens. And these brokerages, like they make their money on the basis of being able to evaluate, can we sell this? Yes or no. And so their, their, their willingness to take it on was like, all right, well, we can always say no to a deal. You're not obligated to say yes. So if we find a great brand GM or something, or one of these new products we create pops off, like let's allow ourselves optionality here. And that was, that was I think, what we went into it with. So we, we did the deal with FE. Um, and, and Andrew, what's their, what's their take? Was it 20%? Is that the take for the broker? Was it 15 um, yeah, it's 15, I think. Yeah. So yeah, so 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 you guys know they take 15% of the closing deal transaction, the transaction value. So that's the that's the fee structure that we enter into, but you only pay it in the event that there's a deal, right? And it's on them to make a determination about the value of that. Um, and they were great about it. And so that that they do a good job putting together a valuation. They set your expectations of what they're gonna go to market at. Um, and we were off and running with these sort of options in our hands about what would happen with no no clear definitive sense of which way we would end up. How do you evaluate those offers as they come in? 
Well, I mean, I'll tell you, like, <clears throat> we didn't have like tons of offers. We had plenty of conversations, but we had, um, we ended up with one really serious bidder and, and they were really serious about it. And so we evaluated it based on essentially, you know, what's our EBITDA? What are we going to be able to do over the next, um, however long, if we keep this business ourselves and, and would we rather take the cash now versus later? And that's kind of that. So I, I mean, in that respect, it's, it was just a matter of saying, do we have a good multiple? Now, one thing we did do is as we started to get towards an offer, we, um, and numbers started floating around. We did check with another um, friend in the space, basically, to like confirm, like, "Hey, our brokerage says this is like a solid multiple on this size business. Do you agree with this?" With somebody who had a lot of experience, um, and he said, "Absolutely." Like, if you're if you're getting short shrift here, it's by very little, basically. Like, uh, and they they didn't even think we were, but they were just saying, like, if you're if you're getting um, not your best offer here. It's not like you're getting killed on this deal at all. So it, that like, just for people who have seen a lot of these kind of come across their desk, like that was a really helpful thing to go like, okay, great. We feel good about this. We like this buyer a ton. Um, and so, um, we think they're going to be a great, uh, person for this. We think they've got integrity on the, on the offer. Like we can walk down this process without worrying about all that stuff. And they really are, have good faith. Um, so yeah, so that's how we did that. Go ahead, Taylor. Yeah. And I think it's important. So one of the things that I want to bring sort of real transparency to, and it's the fun part of this podcast is um, what, how businesses at this size get bought. Like they're bought almost exclusively on either EBITDA, which is functionally a, a way of saying expressing net profit, or on seller's discretionary earnings, which is essentially profit plus whatever the seller paid themselves. So whatever you're thinking about your business and the revenue that it did or the rate at which it's growing or all these things that are metrics that make you feel really great about your business, I'm just telling you, your trailing 12 month, how much cash did you make is the thing that matters here, right? And, and that is really important. And in particular, in e-com, sub 5 million in EBITDA, you're talking about somewhere between three to five X on seller's discretionary earnings. That is like the brokers live in this space. That is what is there for you. And with, with um, FC Goods, we knew that our supply chain was a limiter, that it was a complex part of the process that was going to sort of move us in that range a little bit. And we were aware of that heading into the conversation that like, hey, the same reason we are wanting to sell this because of the part of it that's really hard is the same thing that's going to dampen the enthusiasm to enter into it, right? Is so, so those were all pieces of the puzzle, but that's really important as you sitting here and you're going to evaluate your own brand as you think about the number we're about to share relative to some of the revenue things or the growth rates or all the exciting stuff happening around FC Goods, just contextualize that for yourself. Yeah, I mean, there's a couple other little tweaks on there and I think it's probably worth saying like, um, like another thing that'll get you a couple other things that will like help your multiple. Now, what you said is right, which is like what matters most is profit basically. Um, and that everything is going to be whether you call it SDE or EBITDA, like it, like what matters at the end of the day is like, is, is profit. And that's going to set, um, set your multiple to start. Now, um, there's a couple of things that can sort of then like augment it, uh, and, and, uh, or, or the other, you know, go the wrong direction. I don't know, recess it or something. Anyway, um, the, uh, transferability is one of them. If, if get taking the brand from me to you is going to be a huge pain and make it really, really difficult. And somebody else just can't run the business. That's going to lower your multiple, um, diversity of sales channels will help your multiple diversity of traffic channels will help your multiple. So for example, like we are highly leveraged on Facebook and only on our um, site. And so, uh, 
you know, if we had a great Amazon business and some wholesale accounts and a great eBay business and like whatever, you know, you kind of put all those things together. And also we were driving traffic from all these different sources, like even at the same at the same profit level, like then maybe you would talk about having uh, a little bit better of a multiple. And also if you could bank some um, clear LTV, you could probably get, again, augment that number. But now we're talking about degrees here. We're not talking about like going from a 3X to a 10X, you know, it's like what we're saying is like, those kinds of things all do help. And that has been a helpful learning for us to kind of see what the market says about that, because now you can actually start to sort of work backwards on our other brands and go like, okay, how do we make sure we build these things so that when we get to go to sell it next time, it's easily transferable and it's got diversity of sales channels, it's got diversity of traffic channels and, and all those kinds of things that's going to make it look, you know, shinier and shinier to a potential buyer. Circle the runway, plenty. Let, let's bring it down. What, what was the deal that eventually came through and how yeah. did that reflect against 2020's numbers inside the business? Yep. So trailing 12 month profit, um, was, uh, right around 400 K basically. Um, and so, uh, when we started in May, when we kind of got the deal going, um, so we got a three X almost exactly. Um, and that came out as, um, 1.2 million, um, for 100% of the company, uh, but 900 of that upfront and then 300K in an earnout. And there's actually a little bit of detail to the earnout. We could get as low as $0 on the earnout, although actually we've, we can't get as low as zero because we passed the first phase of it already. But um, we closed the deal at the end of October, actually. So we've been sitting on this for a little while. Um, but uh, so anyway, there's a maximum earnout of 450, but basically it's set at 300. So, so 900, 900 upfront, 300 on the earnout with some upside and some downside on the earnout, um, not just hit it or miss it. So, um, that's basically where we're at. So we got 1.2 million. Um, now, you know, of that money immediately, some of it goes to the brokerage, including on the earnout, of course. Um, uh, and that's all before the cost of the inventory, by the way, the inventory is its own bucket. Uh, um, so, uh, and then, you know, John owned 20% of it. Uh, and so he, he's getting a nice paycheck there. He didn't, um, work with us directly. He was a product designer along the way. So, um, we want to help entrepreneurs achieve their dreams. Like it was a really fun thing to get to call John and say, Hey man, you entrusted us with this and we did this deal and we had this vision for it and it's done It's sold. And like, here's a check coming your way. And so, um, yeah, that was, that was really, really exciting and really fun to do. He's a good dude. And so it was really fun to be able to do that. Um, but yeah, uh, that's the, uh, that's the basic deal structure. So almost exactly three X, um, which will again change depending on how much of the earnout we make, but that's the basic idea. So a couple of details. So to break that math down, so what this means in terms of our return. So if you think about 1.2 million, let's just use that money. Let's assume we get to the 300,000, which is the estimated earnout value right now. You take out the 15%, so it's about 120 grand that goes to FE International. You've got John Brong's 20% of that, which is about whatever that is, $240,000. Um, and then you get leftover with CTs or with four by 400, excuse me, netting out 780,000 in cash, right? So if you do the math, $5,000 initial acquisition, 780,000 in return in roughly two and a half years. Um, so that's the sort of, when we look at it in total, now there's, there's money along the way, but we also made cash along the way. So if you just look at initial upfront investment of purchase price versus sale price, there's more complexity than that. But just, just looking at those two numbers, $5,000 for 80%, that 80% turned into $780,000 in two and a half months. That's a lot of the premise. Two and a half years. Sorry, two and a half years. Two and a half years, sorry. <laughs> yeah. That is a lot of the premise of what 
we think the opportunity is with four by 400 displayed. Like if I was to do a pitch deck, it would sort of be like that times 10, you know, it's like, that's sort of the story in a nutshell. Now, obviously we think there'll be outcomes on either side, but 5,000 to 780, two and a half years times a bunch of times. And if, if, if you if want to take number, that, if that percentage increase isn't in the headline of this podcast, I will have failed you. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes, that's right. Um, the, um, the, uh, the more conservative way to look at that and uh, is that we, we included enough of our services in the early going that there was probably 70 to 75 grand worth of initial investment up front in terms of people's time and some of those things. But even still, that's a 10x return on your money. And, and that doesn't count a dollar of the profit we made along the way. So, um, so yeah, that would be a really, really conservative way of looking at it. Um, and a less clickbait headline Aaron Orndorff way of looking at it. But, uh, but it, it's probably worth just mentioning there's, there's some of that upfront investment as well. And actually, one thing we're trying to get better at calculating is what is the actual time cost for us and the, and the, human cost of, of these kinds of investments for us. Cause it's not just about what we pay to get the brand. Now, what I'll say though, is that that's like a, a sexy way to think about it, but what we're really selling is the future profit too. Right. And so the, the, one of the things I think is worth talking about is like, how did we assess? Should we say yes or no? Because it wasn't immediately obvious. And I'm not even sure that frankly, like to be determined if we made the right decision in a lot of ways, I think for the way that we wanted to deploy the capital, it was the right decision and what we thought about the business. But as you're sitting staring at that, the thing you have to realize is like, okay, if we're going to net 780K, how much will we make if we don't sell it over the next period, right? Because somebody is buying a discount on future earnings. So what is the likelihood of achieving those future earnings? And what do we think they are? And we spent a lot of time thinking about this. And I think there's a good argument and Weiser will probably tell you this, that they think they got a great deal on it. And they think that they're going to make a return on their money in a very short time window, potentially with the business um, as they add their value to it. So in that sense, I'm sure they feel good about where they're at and we can look at it and go, yeah, there, there probably is a path at which it was the maybe undersold or under uh, totally realized from us in value. But the cash, the present value of the cash had real value for us based on all the other things we wanted to do and the other brands and the upside we thought they had. And that's that opportunity cost piece too, because to say yes to continuing to run FC Goods, right, necessitates saying no to a whole host of other things that especially inside something that is a, a wider multi-brand ecosystem, there, there's a lot more on the table uh, at stake. The costs are gonna add up faster. Yeah, and I mean, one of the, my big realizations once I got farther and farther away from running the everyday of it, especially as the transfer kind of happened and we got through the year, was like I gave too much of my time to FC Goods from from my job um, over the last year. I think because I think on a pure cash basis, what you're saying is completely right, Taylor. Which is like there's a pretty solid argument that like what we should have done is is gotten a great brand GM and and all that. But in lieu of that, um, it it is a it is an opportunity cost question for me as much as it is about anything else because yeah i mean i there's a like like listen like we sold the brand not because we think it's a bad brand we sold the brand because we think somebody else was the right person to take it to the next level and there's a pretty good argument that if if not only if that is true but also if i can tell you exactly what the things are to get it to that level that i should just go hire to make those things happen as opposed to like selling it at a discount to somebody else basically which is what you're doing discount on the future earnings like taylor said so um so that, yeah, I think what you're saying is right. And I think, you know, the other thing is it's nice to get the lump sum of cash in the moment, but there's also like that then loses out on some cash flow directly. Actually at the biggest moment of the year, we sold on October 31st. That's when we closed. Um, that was about to be, there was about to be 
a hundred grand in cash uh, that was coming in the door. And by the way, like there's a hundred grand currently sitting in escrow um, that we have to hold back that we can't really do anything with um, until like we get down enough time to where we know, Hey, there's not going to be any problems in the follow-up, but that still sits basically in an FC goods account that we cannot deploy. Um, so um, yeah, I mean that, that will eventually change and we'll have that hundred grand then and it'll be great. But there's like, there's like all of these elements of, of, of an argument around, was it actually the right cash flow decision? Like, I don't know. Now, the other thing I can tell you is that, um, and this is, I think another, like, maybe this is like almost a lesson from it or something like this. And, and maybe we can go into takeaways in a second here, but this will be a, this will, this is a bonus takeaway is that when I told our team that we were going to move to sell FC goods officially, my supply chain guy, Rob Clemens, who's fantastic, muted his microphone on our zoom call and then got up, yelled and danced on a, on a, on a zoom call. Cause he was so happy to be eliminating the headache of, of FC goods supply chain. And as it turns out, like Weiser, the buyer who is really awesome. They are this, uh, I'm, I'm going to like save some of the details for the podcast I did with those guys, but, um, but they're this awesome company in South Dakota with, a, a, you know, some more firepower. They're bigger than us in, in a lot of ways. And so they've pretty immediately figured out how to, how to source the gloves and, and it's just not as big of a deal. They have really strong operations and logistics all the way across their org. But in my org, it was really real. Like my, I had a guy who was so happy to be done with that brand. Um, and, uh, you know, that there's real value in that. <laughs> well, I did the math. That's a, a uh, from, 5K to 780, a 16 million percent ROI. So now I want to wrap that all up. That's together. like you can almost, that's like that's like almost as good as Bitcoin is right now, right, Taylor? Well, hey, slow down, slow down, slow down. The <laughs> only way we make that better is is if we frame this as 10 takeaways, 10 lessons from a 16 million percent ROI. That's the, we, we need to check your math on this, I think, but but I think you're close. But I am really curious, uh, on the back of all of that narrative uh, and the numbers, what are you taking away from this, both of you as, as individuals? Um, should we go back and forth rapid fire here? How do you want to do Like, what? what's the best way to go about this? Aaron? That'd be great. We'll have dueling takeaways, and then I'll okay. only ever publish five of them. <laughs> all right, um, I'll start. Um, a great product with a great story can get you pretty far. That's kind of my, one of my things. Like it, even if it didn't get us to LTV and those sorts of things, like this is a really simple business in a lot of ways. And a lot of the reason that the buyer bought it was because of the, on the marketing side, actually like there's some complex, there's some annoyances operationally to it, but it is Facebook ads to a product that sells itself with a clear story. That's why I think the RPC was good right away. Um, uh, so it's just that like people feel a deep connection to baseball and the product is beautifully made. If you order an FC goods classics wallet and you should go order one right now, if you're interested in the product, I'm serious. Like they're like, you will love it. It is beautifully made. It is like we did it. Robbie did a killer job on the packaging. So it's presented beautifully. The, the are artisans who work on that. Like these guys are really, really good at what they do. And um, you put that all together and there's just not a great substitute for that. I can validate that in the five-star ratings and in the, in the low um, return rate as well. Like every objective piece of data says people really like this product a lot. And so even though we couldn't solve all these problems around it, at the core of the business is this really, really awesome product with a great story around people's love for baseball. And um, if you have that, that's, that can get you really far. Taylor, over to you. 
Yeah. Gifting products make cash flow management challenging. Uh, when your revenue is so consolidated in singular moments, and those moments are preceded by long seasons of not peak moments, and then you have to go outlay a bunch of cash to buy a bunch of product and predict against big moments that are hard to determine, it makes it really challenging to get the inventory volumes right. And in an, as an early stage business, we missed seasons because we didn't have the cash or didn't know how to assess the risk right. It's like, it's just really challenging when your revenue is that consolidated into single moments. Practical, practical. I'm still going to give round one to Andrew. <laughs> I didn't even know we were fighting. Yeah, that's Man. suspect. That's suspect. Yeah, also like, I. that's great because there's nothing... Taylor and I like to do more than argue. So, I mean, now that I know that it's an argument, that's fantastic. Here we go. Number two, Andrew. Um, okay. Uh, this is something I come back to all the time, but a lot of our biggest wins, uh, you know, moments of real increased conversion rate, um, our best ad we ever ran, we spent of all that money, about 800 grand of it was spent in some version of one and of one ad. Um, and all of it, is around this thing, which is that clarity is job number one in digital marketing e-commerce. It just is. The most important thing is that you are clear, uh, that you know people know exactly what they are getting. Uh, our, our, that ad that I'm describing is literally a guy showing the wallet up close and saying, here's what the product is and here's why, here's what the return policy is and here's what the, like, it's just so clear. Um, every time we took some effort into making our product page, more obvious, clearer in what we're buying. Every single time that happened, um, we saw conversion rate boosts. So clarity is job number one. And we are now actually really trying to apply some of that product page build to all of our other brands. Like we're shooting the same explainer videos. There's some structural stuff on Modern Fuels page that looks exactly like the FC Goods product page layout for exactly these reasons. Uh, clarity is job number one. If it's not clear, um, if it's not clear enough, people are gonna experience friction. Taylor, take a swing. Price is more elastic than you think in novel product categories, okay? So when there is not deep price anchoring, like we all know what a can of Pepsi costs. You can't sell it for $50. Everyone knows what it costs. There's lots of optionality. Leather baseball glove wallets have no price anchoring mechanism for consumers. We, the one of the first things that Weiser did, and I'm sure they'll talk about this when they bought the product, was they took some of our limited edition products and raised the price massively um, and sold them. And, and I think that there's a, we talked about this all the time, but when you're in a product category where there is no real, you can keep moving the price up more than you think. And I think we probably could have done that in some ways on some of the products, um, but we definitely did in a lot of cases. It's one of the first things we did with John after we bought the brand. Um, but just remember that like you have a deep sense of the price, but the consumer has no idea and they don't really have an anchor point. If you make it awesome, they'll pay for it. Elastic and anchoring by a small margin that that one goes to Mr. Holiday. Well, and that's like, it should go to Taylor. Cause that was like definitely one of the things that we wait, wait, I'm not even going to laugh at that by a small margin. <laughs> no, I mean, it's like, yeah, oh, I get it. I get it. I, didn't, that, even, I didn't even catch it. That's great. Yeah. That one goes yeah. to me. Okay. Andrew, number three, you're up. Um, okay. Yeah. So at some point you can't build your entire business on customer acquisition. You have to solve other things around the business, whether that's LTV or word of mouth, some kind of thing that is, uh, related to, what you might call, what Taylor and I call in a previous episode, thanks to Webb Smith, an organic marketing flywheel. 
after somebody buys the product, that customer has to be value, valuable to you in some kind of a way. Um, and if they are not, there is a, a limit to your scale. And there's all kinds of ways to go about that. But if I could go play this back, what, what I would do, and again, what we are, I, I sort of do get to go play this back, right? Because we have other brands that are in early stages as well. Um, what, uh, what I would do is try to solve a lot of those early problems a lot better, a lot sooner. Uh, like, uh, yeah, go listen to the episode of Taylor and I talking about modern fuel and the idea of an organic marketing flywheel there. And, and that's the kind of thinking that we're trying to bring much earlier because otherwise your growth is going to be capped. Somebody's going to ask you the question, can you double it again next year? And the answer will be no. Strong name check in that one. Yeah. Taylor? That was good. So are we doing, are we doing five or am I doing three? Because I, I want to decide which, which of my bullets I want to fire right now. Against We're doing that. five. We're doing Against five. That. This okay. is okay. good. This is going to be a standalone piece. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go with then <laughs> product drops are good marketing. So one of the, sometimes you think about uh, marketing as a, as a thing that happens creatively with videos and things like that. But developing product can be a mechanism for marketing. So the thing that FC Goods did really, really well is they would launch these limited edition collections of 30 wallets around a story. They would do, like you said, we had a collection that was Negro League collections. We had a signature series where we found portions of wallets that all included you know, the signatures from wallets. And all of those, there was no revenue to be made really on selling 30 wallets, but they were great ads. We captured a ton of emails. We built connections to customers. We were able to do really cool things that drove our CTRs up. And it created a moment and a reason for people to come back and engage with us. And really what that is, is it's product as marketing, not product as like inventory revenue creation. And I think that that was a, a thing that we take. And now I use to describe the opportunity to brands on our side of the fence at CTC all the time. So product as marketing. I just want to say about that. I mean, again, we are, we are in now for all three of our newest brands are actively pursuing product development as part of the pathway in, in a much more significant way. Um, uh, and particularly for 31 bits now, um, this is kind of the next step for us is like, oh, we've got to get into a schedule of drops and getting product going much more often because you're completely right. Draw. I think he just conceded to me. He literally just no, no. conceded. He said, I, I think actually, you're right. I was actually going to say that mine was still stronger, but uh, but you were right. Well, only because it was as though you were taking this from the, the same idea that organic flywheel and product as marketing, which didn't necessarily culminate in a sale on this side and just layering them to the different parts of the funnel. Excellent. All right. Andrew, take can it. it. Can we, I feel like Taylor's getting some credit for going second. Can we flip the order on this one? That's fine. Yeah. Cause, cause that, that's fine. I'll go first. So sun's in your eyes. this kind of cool. sun's in your eyes. Yeah. It, uh, yeah. Excuses. Pile them up. Here we go. So mine is niche or novel wins in Facebook advertising. Um, and I think that one of the things is like one of the great assessments is if you took every brand and you put product on white and you made them advertise with it, um, some brands would really, really smash and some brands would not work at all because they would require that you go back and you create great advertising because the advertising needs to sell the product. Facebook works. And this, this goes back to our days at Kalo. When we took a black silicone ring on white background and said silicone wedding ring and nobody had ever seen it before. And it was 
fantastic and the ads just worked and that was the extent of the necessary creative fc goods was a lot of the same way it's a it's a wallet made from baseball glove leather that looks awesome in photography and that does a lot of the work now Corey card case which is our ad that carried us deserves a lot of credit um, along the way too but the point is is that when you have a product that is appeals to a very specific niche like we have in this case um, with the baseball audience and one that's novel. People haven't seen it before. It's something new. It's way easier than selling a commodity like a t-shirt or a trash bag. Um, so that I think is a, is an important uh, thing to remember is to get really honest with yourself. I have this two by two matrix I like to draw because you guys all know I'm a drawer. Uh, that basically is on the x-axis is how unique and special is your product. And then the y-axis is how unique and special is your advertising. And the reality is you have to get really honest about where you are on that spectrum of how unique and novel your product is to determine how much effort you need to put into the storytelling. And FC Goods told a lot of the story for us in the product. Nature novel, he's bringing the alliteration heat. You're up next. All right, my number four is that, uh, is is sort of sneaky here, which is that value to weight ratio is a crucial part of your cost of delivery. Um, the leather is a funny thing because leather actually um, has gotten a lot cheaper as a uh, as a raw material in the last bunch of years, um, but it's not super cheap. It's not like the gross margin on the actual product for FC Goods is not incredible. But um, because FC Goods, because the wallets are relatively small and not super heavy, um, it doesn't cost very much to ship it to people. And I think there are times where people go into e-commerce businesses and don't really realize how much of your margin shipping can eat up. We certainly didn't realize that in the early days of Slick. Um, and, and we're now seeing that advantage in some of our other brands um, and now actually really hammering away at trying to make it even a bigger part of our advantage. And in fact, I think if we held on, uh, one of the things that Weiser will do for sure, they have incredible logistics, is they will make it even cheaper to ship. Um, and there is just massive savings that goes straight into your bottom line by simply making it easier and cheaper to get it to the customer at the end of the day. The other thing about that is that we could also get it to the customer very fast for pretty cheap. Um, so we would give people great, they're paying premium dollars for a premium product. Um, we would be able to get it to people really quickly um, for pretty cheap and it was not too difficult. So, um, so, that ended up making it so that overall, while FC Goods never had incredible margins, it had pretty good margins, workable margins, depending on when you're looking at it and how we were getting it there and all the kinds of stuff, you'd be sitting somewhere around 65 uh, uh, per points of margin at the end of the day. And that's not incredible, but it would not have been doable if it weren't for the fact that it was cheap to ship because the, the leather itself and the raw materials of baseball glove buying and how much yield you get per glove and all that kind of stuff created some supply chain challenges, like I said. But at the end of the day, it was so easy to get it to customers that there was just kind of a built-in advantage um, along those lines. Aaron, for, so the audience can understand, value weight ratio is AOV divided by shipping costs. So I just want to clarify this point because it, it, it seemed a little confusing from the outside. So I just want to make sure as you think about that round and you think about assigning it, just consider that. If only so that uh, I have the opportunity to suck up the digitally native on Twitter, value to weight ratio takes it. You're pandering. You're pandering, Aaron. Yeah. Yeah, that give, giving a marketer the authority to make these decisions yeah. is not great. <laughs> exactly. Don't um, add me. All right. Number five, I'm going to get a little uh, sentimental, but I think it's a real thing. Um, doing something you really enjoy has real tangible value. And if you, you heard Andrew describe it earlier, his brain went to this brand naturally because he loves baseball. And if you have to go apply yourself to a thing that you hate or that you only kind of like, you will be resistant to doing it. I like I love FC Goods, 
Um, it is a brand that every day I owned it, I was proud of it. I was excited. I wanted to show it to friends. And I think our entire company naturally allocated. I know one of our designers over allocated themselves to it because of that. Like when you love something, the amount of energy you can put towards it before you get drained is really different. Um, and FC Goods was that way. I loved it every day we owned it. And I hope nothing but the best from it going forward because it's just a freaking really cool brand. Okay. Uh, my number five, that's a great point, Taylor. My number five is that doing something you really enjoy has real value. Um, I, um, I think it's a great spot to like kind of end this conversation on. I, I, I will say from my perspective, the same thing, like, like Taylor, you know, Taylor, and I both are huge baseball guys. Um, and, um, and, and even beyond being a big baseball guy, like just like the kind of level of effort that went into the video, like the creative work, the video, all the hand lettering for every custom limited edition logo that Robbie ever made. Um, it's the same thing. I feel a real sense of pride around that. And, um, and I mean, I'm actually going tomorrow to help shoot some more video content for FC goods. Uh, like, despite that, like, um, I don't like, like, I mean, they could probably find maybe another way to do it. I, I you know, part of this is the transfer and the earn out and all that kind of stuff, but also it's just like really, 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 um, fun. And so I had committed to helping them with this before. So, um, yeah, spending all that time on that brand was super fun. I personally wrote, uh, like almost all of our booklets, uh, that ended up going out to customers on a limited edition series, going and digging into the research around, you know, this Negro league player or, um, or yeah, like this, the 1934 all-star game, I think was, I might have been too, anyway, it doesn't matter, but like those kinds of things and going and learning about like listening literally to radio calls of, of stuff from vintage baseball games and all that. So, uh, yeah, it just was a fun brand to work on. And every time we dropped something and I saw the cut, like comments on social and all that kind of stuff, it really, really mattered. Sometimes I think that it would have been more fun to shut down everything else we're doing. And like, you know, Taylor for like you, me and Robbie to just go like run FC goods. And that was, you know, we wouldn't, you know, have as, we would have to have smaller visions for where we wanted to take the whole uh, ecosystem and our lives and all those kinds of things. But it would have been a lot of fun because it's just really, really fun. That is a phenomenal point to end on. Uh, and I'm really glad I crafted all of those and teed you up with them so that we could bring it all together just like that at the end in such a Yeah, nice this is why you're hosting. You know, you're just yeah. a genius on this stuff, Aaron. I appreciate it. Oh, well, it was my delight to be here with both you gentlemen. And uh, Andrew, you want to take us out? So there you have it. That is the story of the first brand that we have taken all the way from acquisition through sale. We tried to cover the whole journey for you. Um, because, uh, you know, we've gotten little pieces of it along the way. If you've been listening to this podcast for the last uh, year or so, and our commitment remains uh, as it was with this episode to try to be as absolutely forthright and honest as we could be. Uh, the Weiser guys were totally cool with me sharing the numbers, and I really, really appreciate that. Um, do definitely check out that next episode where... Um, where I talked to, the, like I said, the president and the CEO uh, of Weiser. They're going to tell you all about what they saw in this deal. And and uh, and I think it's super interesting to hear from their perspective as buyers and uh, some of their hopes for the brand. Uh, again, thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this episode, I would love to hear them. Um, so fire those over to me at podcast at 4x400.com or hit me on Twitter at Andrew J. Ferris. That's F-A-R-I-S. I would love to uh, have you rate or review the podcast. As always, I know everybody says that on every podcast. It really does help. They say that too and it's really true um so thank you so much for doing that aaron 
you're still here listening to me do this outro. Thanks, man. Thanks for your time. Thanks for leading the way. Absolute pleasure. Just getting to be with both of you. Yeah, that was super fun. So uh, thanks for making it happen. And thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.